0: This week follows on last week when we touched on um, evangelical feminism. We tried our best not to get stuck on feminism per se, and we wanted to sketch to you that the reason why we end up with evangelical feminism, or otherwise known now as egalitarianism, is because of the cultural influence from a feminist uh, viewpoint. And that has uh, taken place over a period of time, many years, and we touched on that even last week. We're going to try our best not to uh, labor the point, and we don't want to be laboring the point there. We want to get into some scriptures this week, and we want to hear from a feminist or an evangelical feminist point of view. We want to hear from them to some extent as to why they do have this problem with those who believe that the eldership or the pastorship is only available to men who are qualified to fulfill that office. And so when you think about what we're talking about for the past two weeks, then please focus on that because that's where we ultimately are zooming in on. It's the whole idea of responding to the evangelical feminist who says that a woman can also lead in a church and be a pastor be an elder that's the challenge and i say that very quickly and i say that up front because i know if we should have question or time for questions then at least it safeguards me already because i've narrowed down and we will exclude all those who want to talk about feminism. We want to talk about the word of God and specifically around our particular topic. Let me also rush to add that um, Pastor Denver and Pastor Peter and um, I'm sure Pastor Don, I haven't, I've only seen him um, um, at this moment when I entered. But I'm sure they are so eager and so keen to jump to answer. Any of your questions. So we're going to move. And again, our key objectives today are just twofold. We want to explain biblical teaching around the value, role, and function of male and female in the church. And then we want to affirm scripture that only men can qualify for eldership. All the other key objectives I think we've covered already. So in today's teaching plan, We're going to spend some time on Timothy, and hopefully we can get there quickly, and then a little bit Corinthians, and then we'll end off with uh, complementarianism, just briefly about it, although I'm not too keen to use these words, but they are there. And uh, what can we do about it Uh, theologically? We have to use certain terms to describe certain beliefs and certain people, and so I guess the best at the present moment and probably going forward, and has been accepted, is the egalitarian view and the complementarian view. So just quickly, in terms of session one, you will remember, and I just want to quickly recap on some of that. We did look at the hermeneutics, some definitions, some history we've given, and then we explained some of the principles by which the evangelical feminist conduct themselves and what they believe in. And then we made some brief comparisons between the egalitarian and the complementarian view. So that's what we did last week. And so we want to just reiterate that, um, especially point number four, the church is constantly under attack, even from within the church. And can I just say quickly at this stage that when we talk about the church, we are talking about the body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is their Savior. He is their Lord. He is their King. And sometimes when you use the word church, people think you are referring to a denomination, possibly the Roman Catholic Church, etc. We are not referring to um, any of such. We are referring to the Church of the Living God and um, ultimately, we are obviously also speaking about the expression of that universal church, which we find in a local um, gathering like here today at Living Hope Bible Church. And then we have stressed the inerrancy, inspiration, and authority of Scripture, and we'll probably touch on that a little bit more. Again, I want to open with this um, with this reading, and uh, there's a reason why I've opened uh, with this reading. Second Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one, one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And this is so important in the light of our topic, in the light of our subject, and in the light of just engaging even more broadly uh, in the in the Christian world, I just heard the other day when I was uh, doing some listening in on some clips and on a particular panel, somebody was asked, what does the Apostle Paul mean when he speaks in 1st Timothy chapter 2? And the person responded and said, Paul is not Jesus. I would prefer what Jesus say than to what Paul says. And these were a group of believers. And this is obviously for all to see. Now that in and itself is extremely dangerous. It's extremely dangerous if you have that approach to the word of God. And hence we, we love reading these scriptures over and over to remind ourselves that the scriptures that we have in front of us, They are not of human origin. They were not privately developed um, somewhere sitting under a tree. Neither did Paul just privately come up with some suggestions about women and men. And no, Paul is not a chauvinist. Paul received scripture as the others have received scripture. um, This inspired word of God through the Holy Spirit. Not of human origin. Not of human will. It is all of God himself. Yes, God did use human writers and used their intellect and used knowledge, etc. But the word of God comes from God and the word of God is inspired. And God is the divine author and originator of scripture. And that includes Old and New Testament. Please note when the writers wrote, the Old Testament was Available fully, but the New Testament was still in writing. And obviously they have not only been referring to Old Testament teaching, but they've also been referring to all New Testament teaching that we have in front of us today in Holy Scripture. This particular scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Scriptures breathed out by God, old and new, and uh, it is profitable, as we've even heard this morning in Denver's prayer, that God's word convicts us, changes us, makes us holy, and it trains us up in righteousness. So let me go to Genesis, and the reason why I go to Genesis is very simple. I'm not sure if my font this week is big enough. I'm hoping it's big enough. I, I tried my, my best. Let me just check for those for those old ones at the back. Um, sorry, the young ones too at the back. I get a thumbs up. I hope it's, um, it's big enough this week. The reason why I go to Genesis first is just to lay some sort of foundation. And you'll see later on Because that's where everything began. We find out about male and female in Genesis. And specifically Genesis 1, because we we are told about how God created all things, and he's also created male and female. And sometimes the egalitarians like to go there because they want to speak about man and woman being created in God's image, and they, they hold on to that teaching, which is true, by the way, it's a biblical teaching, and from that they then deduce that man and woman, male and female, should therefore be equal before God, which is another truth in Scripture. But in creation, we, Genesis 1 specifically, we also read about male and female being co-rulers, we also read about God telling them to multiply. And again, that instruction went to male and female. You cannot multiply if you're male only, and you cannot multiply if you are female only. God has designed man and human, male and female. I know we, the world is struggling with this because they've turned away from the God who is the creator of all. And they have all kinds of other gender that they want to add, but we know of male and female, and we we stress that because that's found in the Word of God, sorry and then it's in Genesis. It's also in Genesis that we find out that man was the designation for male and female. When we go to Genesis 2, the focus is on humanity. And man is then um, created first, says the Bible, out of the dust. And then we only find um, human being created afterwards. And God goes into more detail and he tells us all about humanity. And then he gives man responsibility in the garden. And then man is given the rules, don't eat, of a particular tree. And then man is given the great privilege of naming animals, and even a greater privilege of naming woman, who is Adam's wife. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of the four, and we read of the serpent, who tempted uh, the woman, man and woman, ate of the forbidden tree, God engaged all, there was punishment dished out to everybody, and to man and woman, each one had to take their punishment separately. Now, these are important facts that we are just going over, and you might say, but these are so basic. But this is so important because the egalitarian runs to Genesis and uses Genesis. In the wrong way. And we remind you so that we can stick to what the Bible has to say. Okay, so let's get into Timothy. Now, let me make, I know Denver said uh, no excuses, but let me make some excuses up front. And the first excuse I want to make is we are not going to get into all the Greek today. Some of us might know Greek better than others, and then now there are some of us who are still learning about Greek. The other night, I was in a class with some of you who are seated here, and whatever Denver was explaining to us was Greek, and uh, so we still we still have a way to go with that, but we we we're getting there. So I think it's important for me not to get entangled in all the Greek. Not only for my sake, but for yours also. Um, I know that's a cop out, but I certainly don't want to embarrass embarrass my teacher. If I give you an incorrect Greek word today, then Denver <laughs> would be the one <laughs> who'll be embarrassed. He's our teacher. I just will the class. Yeah. Okay. So first Timothy chapter two eleven to fifteen. Uh, we can we can read even from verse eight to verse fifteen. Um, But you can open that in front of you. What I'm just going to do is then just move as quickly as possible through these passages. And the reason why I'm only highlighting, you'll see I'm highlighting certain things as we go through the slides, is because those are the things that the evangelical feminist is raising. One of the first things they raise is the old issue about women in this text. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The reason why I say not wife is because they believe that that word woman should be interpreted as wife. And so let me quickly go to the next one. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And they believe that that man should be interpreted as husband. Now, this is important for this text, because if they are correct, then complementarianism, which doesn't only stand and fall on this verse, but then complementarianism would be compromised. But here's the thing. When you read Timothy, and you read this passage, if we were supposed to insert wife there, then it doesn't make sense because let the wife learn quietly with all submissiveness, and I do not permit a wife to teach or exercise authority over her husband. So, if two people were in church today, let's go to Peter and Dorothy, one of the elder, one of the elders in the in the assembly. If this verse was to be correct as such. Then, it would read, then let Dorothy learn quietly with all submission. Sorry, let Dorothy, I went the wrong way. Let Dorothy learn with all submission, and I do not permit Dorothy to teach or exercise authority over Peter, because Peter's husband. So you see, it doesn't even make sense when they do that. But they believe it's a wife and it's a husband. And the reason why is because they want to move away from woman and man, male and female. They want to move away. Again, we could go into, into the Greek discussions, but all the theologians and the scholars have, fortunately, they have applied a literal or those who apply a literal grammatical and contextual approach to the scripture have, have, have come to realize that that suggestion can never even be entertained at all because it doesn't make sense but also contextually it, it just doesn't make sense and it's not in keeping with the entire portion of scripture. So all believe who have a literal and grammatical and a contextual approach to Timothy and to scripture as a whole, they know that that word human should be human contextually. I want to add that the word that's being used there can be, can be wife, can be woman, can be wife. I want to be honest with the text there and honest with the Greek. But contextually, it doesn't make sense. And, they, and and also Paul is very specific when he speaks about a woman and a man. And he's also very specific when he goes to speak about a husband and a wife. And hopefully I can show that also from Scripture. So firstly, contextually it doesn't, it's not, uh, um, those who apply a literal and grammatical approach don't arrive at that conclusion. And then it doesn't make sense. And then if we just look at how Paul writes, it also is not consistent with what Paul, um, how Paul writes in Scripture and in the epistles. He would be very specific about using the correct words. In this context, woman should be woman and man should be man. And the evangelical feminist would still contend that it should be wife wife. And man, we've already touched on this. Not a married man, because the context determines that. So can I can I ask you just to turn with me to Romans seven and verse two? And maybe I'll just read the first one. Maybe one or two of you can turn to the other scriptures. That's on the board, Ephesians five two, and we just want to highlight this particular point. So I'm going to read Romans 7 verse 2. I don't know if there's a mic already available. If there's a mic available, if you can just hand that to someone who wants to read Ephesians 5.2 and somebody to read 1 Corinthians 7.12 for the sake of the recording. But I will read Romans 7 verse 2. Just look how specific Paul is. In this context, for the married woman has been bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Now, I know I'm just reading one verse, but already you should see just from reading that one verse how very specific Paul is. He knows when he's speaking about a marital marriage situation when he's addressing marriage and the whole context in Romans 7 is just that the context in 1st Timothy 2 is not about marriage it's about how women ought to conduct themselves and how men ought to conduct themselves in the church can somebody read Ephesians 5 2 who's got the the mic Ephesians 5 2 and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thank you. And then somebody, 1 Corinthians 7.12. 1 Corinthians 7.12. To the rest I say, I, <clears throat> not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Well, again, just to remind you, in those verses, Paul is very specific. In Timothy, Paul knows he is not speaking about a husband and a wife relationship. 522. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that. Thank you. Did we read the wrong verse? Is that what you're saying, Denver? Uh, Lorenzo, can you can you read it again, please? We need to. We need to be accurate. I know we finished that uh, verse already, but please, thank you. Ephesians five twenty-two, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Thank you. That uh, the, uh, well, again, that, that verse just um, that verse just confirms again well how Paul goes about writing and how specific he is and what he has in mind. I do not permit a wife, we go further in that, um, in that section, I do not permit a wife to teach or to exercise authority over her husband. Again, I want to make this point. If that is what the verse is saying, I do not permit a wife to teach or exercise authority over her husband, then we have a situation where only husbands... Pray in the church. Only wives adorn. What about those who are single? It just doesn't make sense. So it has to be, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the local church. That's God's design and that's God's order for the local church. And the feminist is... uh, trying to look for ways around it and trying to create instability within the local church and confusion amongst God's people. As we read again, I want to focus this time on I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. I do not permit. I wonder... Denver, can you give the thumbs up or have we got the right um, Greek word there? Epitrepo. It's in its present tense. It's in its present tense. That particular verb is in its present tense. Why is this important? Is because the egalitarian says, if it's in its present tense, then it only applies to that particular period of time. So that's the hermeneutic. So, whenever the writer writes and is using the present tense form of the verb, then that particular command and instruction remains there because it's of a temporary nature and it doesn't have a lasting impact on us. So, therefore, it's a temporary command. Further to that, they argue that Paul says, and uses a lot of I and me in his teaching. I, Paul, I say, I command, I recommend, I suggest, etc. I, Paul, therefore, has to be interpreted as temporary. So, two things are going on at this point in time. I do not permit, it's present tense, that verb is in its present tense, therefore, the argument is. It remains with the Ephesians at the time of Timothy teaching. I, because Paul uses I so often, also they believe it remains temporary. But again, if I was to ask you, to avoid any questions from you to me, if I was going to ask you, does those two points that they raise, does it not concern you? What is the implication if that's the way we are to interpret Scripture? If every time you see a present tense form of the verb, it means that that instruction and teaching belongs there and it doesn't have lasting impact. And secondly, whenever Paul or Peter or John, whoever's writing, whenever they give an instruction and use, I and me then we have to deduce that that instruction is also temporary so let me give you some of the present indicative um, form of that verse i'm uh, sorry of the verb and there are some examples in first Timothy chapter two and verse one, Romans chapter twelve and verse one ephesians four um, verse one are all Examples of that. So I'm going to read Romans 12, verse 1 for you. For the sake of time, let me just read that quickly for you. And I want to show you that if we do follow, if we do follow what they are teaching, the egalitarian view, then this is what doesn't apply to us anymore. Because it only applied to the, to the believers at Rome. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 um, and verse 1, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I hope you see the impact. If that Remains with the church of Rome and is not applicable today. Then you can do whatever you want to do. With your life, with your body, etc. Because by the way, any related instruction like this. Is probably also going to be in a present indicative. And it's also going to be written by Paul or Peter. And you will come up with the same conclusion. This is dangerous in terms of how they exegete, how they hermeneutic, their hermeneutic, in terms of how they understand scripture. It is dangerous, and we need to be aware of it and need to stay far away from that because it undermines the authority of scripture. In fact, if it's not Schreiner or if it's not Kostenberger, uh, one of those scholars, um, in my reading, they have said there are about 760 times in the English language where the present indicative is being used. You might as well go to those 760 times and tear it out of your Bible, if that's the case. If their hermeneutic is valid, then we might as well tear that out of our scripture. And isn't that what people ultimately want the attack on the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. There are enough, there's enough evidence to show very clearly that their view is an incorrect view, and it is damaging to the church, especially when we sit with Scripture that explains so much, teaches so much, and commands so much of each believer. In 1st Timothy 2, 8 to 15, there's instruction for women. So I'm still in Timothy. We've raised some of the key areas where they have attacked this scripture, this portion of scripture. And uh, the Bible makes it very clear what those instructions for women are. In verse 9 of that very chapter speaks about their clothing, the woman's clothing. Adorn yourself about their character of godliness. That should be their focus. Their conduct, having a submissive attitude in the church, submitting themselves to the leadership of men in the church. And then Paul gives reasons why he has given that instruction, and he takes them right back to creation. Please forgive me. He takes all of us right back to creation. And he gives creation as the r- rationale as to why women should be submissive in the church and they must not usurp any authority over men. And if you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, as we've touched on earlier, that is why, and that is how important that section of scripture is, as Paul gives the reason and the rationale. And this particular reason cannot be refuted. This particular reason will stand any test of any question of any suspicion. The reason of creation. And Paul was very clear that it's because of all that took place in creation that God wants this particular order In his church. He also then touches on childbearing. And that is something. um, It's actually a verse that's uh, quite difficult to explain. But what we do know about that verse. Is that it does not mean. That because a woman gives birth. She receives eternal life. It cannot mean that. Because it will contradict all other scriptures. So it really doesn't mean that. And I'm sure you're probably asking me, then what does it mean? And when I end in a few minutes' time, Denver and Peter will answer that question. Suffice to say at this point, it's a, a, and I don't want us to get entangled in that right now, we can do that at the end, but... Suffice to say, it is a difficult um, um, portion of Scripture and the explanation that is given over there about childbearing. I think, if not all, then most theologians and scholars still grapple with the, with the options um, that's available to best understand that Scripture. Let me quickly touch on 1 Corinthians 14 because this is another verse that they go to. All I want to say about this portion is that it's similar instruction for women that uh, that was given in 1st Timothy, chapter 2. Again, listen to the language not permitted. That was also in Timothy. Silence, also in Timothy. Submission, also in Timothy. And learn quietly, also in Timothy. Even though this is to the Corinthian church. And, and, and Paul was writing to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, to set things in order over there. Still, the egalitarian believes that this type of teaching doesn't belong in the church today because they are saying that that instruction was only for Timothy and the church at Ephesus. They bump their heads when they come across 1 Corinthians 14 because now it's not only one church. It's the second church Paul speaks to about the very same matter. So what do you do? What do you do when you're caught in that corner? When you said something, you concluded something belongs only at that one particular church, and then you you read further and you find, well, the same instruction goes to another church. Your argument falls flat. And what do you do when your argument falls flat? I tell you what you do. You tear that piece out of scripture, tear it out. And that's exactly what egalitarians do. They say that first Corinthians 14 doesn't belong in scripture. Now, it's not all of them, but there are some of them that believe that it's a questionable portion of scripture. And again, I stay in my lane. I will not venture down that path because I have not gone into that detail of study around 1 Corinthians 14 to question whether it should be in scripture or not. All I know for now is that it's there and all I know is that it's a similar teaching. And I do know that the egalitarians struggle when it, comes to, when it comes to these portions of Scripture. I hope that just from those few comments on Timothy and from, and from uh, Corinthians, that we can clearly see that the egalitarians, with everything that they throw at Scripture, because they're not competing with complementarianism. They're not competing with us. They are fighting Scripture. And scripture um, is clear in terms of the role of men and women. So I just want to end off by showing the distinction between the office of an elder or an office held in the local church and giftedness. Because they have run to this also to try and find some firepower. So the office of an apostle, of an elder, of a deacon, the scriptures speak about. And I want to make certain points about um, an office. An office, men are appointed to that. It's not for all. The Bible's very clear. Certain people, certain men, sorry, have to qualify to be an elder, have to qualify to be a pastor. It is not for everybody. There's marital faithfulness that's involved as one of those qualifications. And the Bible is clear when it comes to an elder, he is supposed to be a husband of one wife. I cannot understand how a woman is going to be a husband of one wife unless you overthrow everything else that scripture says. Not a novice. And I stress one more time, men only. When it comes to giftedness, don't confuse giftedness with, with an, uh, holding an office in the church, as so many do. They believe because a woman is gifted, therefore a woman can hold the office. They believe because a woman, women in the church are able to teach, because they have that gift, therefore it equates to a qualification as an elder. That is not what the Bible teaches us. Giftedness is based on God's sovereignty. He decides who gets what gift or gifts. In the previous case, there's an appointment, and it's not for all. In giftedness case, gifts are given by God freely. You don't need any qualifications. You just need to be a born-again Christian, and the Holy Spirit will distribute to you what God decides in terms of his giftedness. That he endows you with. No maturity is required for giftedness. Yes, we mature as we utilize our gifts. But no maturity is required. And it's for all genders. Male and female. So if you want to be a feminist, please remember it's for all genders. If you want to be a chauvinist, please remember giftedness are for all. In the church, male and female. But when we're talking about an office, it's for men only. You want to be an elder, we are not going to call anybody, I hope, in this church an elderess. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 speak about gifts and how God endows people with gifts. We must never confuse the two. And the egalitarian always uses that excuse and I come across that every day in my life roles for women and this is where it gets tricky and I'm going to end with this you can read outreach missions work counseling women teaching women service hospitality community and so um, much more work that women can do um, in the local church just in summary Egalitarianism, it was influenced by growing feminist culture. The hermeneutic is to deconstruct scripture and then reconstruct it in their own way, according to their own desires and their own views and philosophies. Complementarianism has a literal and grammatical and contextual approach to scripture, and that is why we end up um, where we do, um, especially here at Living Hope Bible Church. The church is constantly under attack, even from within. Genesis to Revelation, male and female distinctions and roles um, is clear. Creation, male and female, in the image of God we were created, and male and female do have different roles and functions in the church. Because we created in God's image, we are of equal value, but in terms of our roles and functions, we cannot fulfill the same, the office of an elder, of a pastor, of deacons, are for men only, and women have great roles to play in the church. Male leadership in the church and in the home. Thank you very much. There's still about six minutes um, to go. I've timed it very well. It will keep questions down to a bare minimum. Um, I wonder if... uh, If there are any questions in terms of the resources, uh, obviously, we will we will we can share some of that with you at some time. But it's good for you to purchase your own. And then I also want to thank um, some uh, who have shared some of those resources with us. I know I've I've got some resources from Mark Smith, but most of my resources actually came from a woman and she's not a feminist. Um, I hope um, her name is Gaynor. If you know her. Um, I'm sure Um, she's not a feminist. So thanks very much. And I trust the Lord will bless uh, what was said today.
1: Any questions?
0: Yeah, Yeah, maybe, brother, if you can. um, Because even if you say these things, or the role of a woman, the, the response will always come, yes, but are you saying woman is less than as the inequality. So could you maybe just touch briefly on the difference between gender equality and gender roles, just to make a distinction between them? The, the, the teacher.
1: <laughs>
0: gender equality versus gender roles. Um, I think we, we touched a little bit on that. Um, today we didn't want to uh, you know, dwell into all of that. There's just no time to dwell on all of that, but gender equality, and and I, I I'm I'm not sure if you're talking from a feminist view, but from a biblical view, um, men and women are equal. They have been created in the image of God, and they've been created equal. We see that in Genesis one already, um, and and so God has always God has always maintained that that there is that there is that equality between a man and a woman. The value of a woman, the value of a man in in the sight of God, remains the same. He made them male and female. And uh, in in our standing before God as sinners, male and female, they are of the same value. They've got to come to Christ um, in the same way for salvation. Um, But the role that a woman and a man plays um, is a functional issue, and it's not a value issue. It's not um, an essence issue. So male and female, in essence, man and woman, in essence, in their being, they are of the same value. But in their role, God says, I've got a different role for you to play. And that we see even prior to the fall. Not only after the fall, prior to the fall. The egalitarians like to go to the fall and say, it's since the fall that um, this patriarchy came about, etc. So that's not necessarily true. I believe this and to support me, I hope. Uh, you also have to keep in mind the Trinity.
1: Uh, the son submits to the father and yet they are perfectly equal. If they weren't, that would immediately mean that there's a problem in our, in our theology if we say that. The father and the son are co-equal and yet the son submits to the father. So
0: the fact that a wife submits to her husband does not make her less or, or of lesser value than her husband, because she does that.
1: Yeah, so Fundamentally, the foundation to a question like that, and it's a, it's a genuine question, is that in creation, God sets an ontological equality between man and woman, but there's functional differences. God sets that in tone for all of creation. So there's no distinction in creation. There's a distinction in gender, there's a distinction in role, but in terms of equality, both of them receive the image of God. Both of them are said um uh, uh, and and they shall be the news of God. Both of them are given the kingdom right to reign and rule. Both of them we see that in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So there's equality from God's perspective ontologically, but uh, relationally and, and practically there is a distinction. One quick one quick point to just uh, support all that is that um in creation, God has made them equal. Equal in the image of God is the image that's unpacked now. That same dynamic is carried over in salvation because Galatians tells us that in Christ is neither male nor female. They use that in a tremendous way because all of a sudden in their mind is that while creation has caused one, has, created, has provides one dynamic, now that we save things are different. We are neither male nor female. We are equal in that sense. It's not. But it's just that we are equal positionally. Our salvation is equal that... We are equally righteous but the roles still differ and in fact paul then defines how that roles differ in very specific ways yeah that's uh galatians 3 does speak about uh, the male and female equality slave and free equality in terms of salvation god doesn't think men are more important in terms of salvation nor does he think women are more deserving of salvation so both of them may have been already um equal donations of salvation. I think our time is up because the sun is coming in. If there were more questions, you can uh, submit it in writing and (laughs) we'll Let me both. Father, we are thankful to you for uh, such a great and blessed opportunity to hear from your word. Uh, You are the sovereign uh, creator of all things and the wise creator of both males and females and you know what is best for us And so when Paul says that I desire, he speaks on your behalf. And uh, we have the instruction in your word uh, how to relate to one another, even as women are to submit and men are to lead. This is from your word. And so you desire us uh, to respond in this way. Pray for grace. uh, Pray for clear minds and uh, willing hearts to submit and obey. To give thanks in Christ's name. Amen.